Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we are going to start a little bit of a discussion about leukemias and a very particular type of leukemia called APL as part of our Hemonk Emergency Series. Because believe it or not, yes, leukemias are scary, but this one in particular is scary, is relatively common depending on where you are and the type of hospital you practice at, but is something that's easily reversible. And of course, most importantly, we'll probably come at two o'clock in the morning. So it's best to stay tuned and uh, listen in on our conversation. You guys, I'm, I am really excited about this episode. I, I think, you know, up until now, a lot of our uh, discussions have been a little bit more fundamental. I'm glad to see that we're now incorporating some more diseases per se as part of our discussion and like the forefront of discussion instead of just being examples. Yeah, I think this is a great choice here because it caps off our Hemonc emergency series. But really, we're transitioning now into looking at disease-specific topics. And so this will be the part one of the episode where we'll really focus on the acute management, what you need to do immediately. And then in the part two of this episode, we'll really get into more of the details on how to treat the disease, how do you do things like consolidation, and you know how do we risk stratify patients and things like that. But I'm really excited to move forward and get out of some of these fundamental topics. And you know, from my point of view, it's just such a cool story, too. It's a disease that used to be just the most feared type of leukemia. And just our understanding of the pathogenesis of the disease and, and the molecular mechanisms behind promyelistic leukemia, it's transformed the treatment uh, and made it now the most curable leukemia. But it remains a hematologic emergency up front. So, yeah, glad we're talking about it. Okay, so without further ado, let's roll the episode. All right, guys. So before we get onto our episode, I think some congratulations are in order to Vivek for getting married recently, and and you, Ronak. We both uh, we both got married, and and it's been it's been good. You know, we had the, this couple weeks off. So pe- listeners, you're probably wondering why this episode's coming out months after uh, we got married. But you know, we we had to take a couple of weeks off, but we had all these episodes already recorded. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, you know, in my case. Me and my well now wife, which is very strange to say, still very weird to say, uh, <laughs> lives in a different state because she's a fellow at a different institution, and so it's a little weird. Like he got married, and then I kind of just got back on a plane and flew back to Reloy University Medical Center, and she went off on her way, and so I'll see her in a week and a half when we go to another wedding. But you know, life kind of just goes on, but. It was. It's funny, like when people when I got back to work on Monday and people are like, "Hey, what did you do this weekend?" I'm like, eh, "I got married." And then you just kind of move on, and everyone just looks at you funny. I don't know. I don't know if that was your experience, Vivek, because I'm pretty sure you were back to work uh, after the wedding as well. Yeah, yeah. My now wife, also, you know, again, weird to say, she's a chief resident right now at Rulo University Medical Center and in internal medicine, and so we were waiting to go on our honeymoon until she was done with her chief year. So really. 
yeah, it was just business as usual. I went right back to work. I, we, I took one day off before I went back, but still, you know, it's, and, and we were already living together and everything. So it, it didn't really, nothing's felt very different, but we had, we had such a good time. Yeah. I mean, congrats guys. It's, that's a big deal. If nothing else, it's probably just nice to not have to think about planning your wedding anymore. It, it's it was wonderful, and and I think actually we haven't recorded an episode since the kickoff to the wedding season where Dan had us over for wine and cheese. Which guys, let me tell you, I know Vivek <laughs> mentioned uh, some of the cooking that Dan did for him a while back, but. I got to participate this time, and let me tell you, number one, the pizza was unbelievable, and the wine selection, along with a handout so we can talk about our our experiences with each wine, I mean, you couldn't even find this in the valleys of Napa. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. So it's been it's been certainly a good time, listeners, but we are certainly excited to be back with another episode for you all. And guys, if you're ready, let's go ahead and get started with the case. Yeah, yeah. The, today I've got the case for us, and we have here a 55-year-old Hispanic male with obstructive sleep apnea and sick sinus syndrome, status post pacemaker placement a few years ago, who presented with a two-week history of fatigue, easy bruising, and recurrent epistaxis. Just to fast forward a little bit, he had been also having some fevers on further history and some night sweats at home. And so he presented to the ER and they got a set of labs and they found that he had, uh, for a CBC, a white blood cell count of 6.4 with 65% blasts reported, hemoglobin of 7.6, and a platelet count of 10. We've talked about in previous episodes when we see a patient with reported blasts and low blood counts that were concerned for something like acute leukemia, and that's referencing our heme path series, which really is going to be important in understanding this case. So we, we did some further investigation given the concern for acute leukemia and got a BMP and a uric acid. These are always important to get because you're looking for things like tumor lysis syndrome. And the BMP was unremarkable. The uric acid was elevated at 7.5. And we also got a phosphorus level, which was within normal limits. Another thing we worry about with acute leukemia or DIC. And this patient had an elevated PTT at 45 elevated INR at 2.4, and a low fibrinogen at 70. So it appeared that he also had an element of, of DIC along with that thrombocytopenia. So really my question to you guys is now we have this patient with 65% reported blasts, an elevated uric acid, but otherwise no other major tumor lysis labs that were abnormal, and clear DIC with an elevated INR, PTT, and low fibrinogen with the severe thrombocytopenia. So what would your next step be in the workup for this patient? I'm just going to go ahead and throw getting a smear on that on that list of things. And, and Dan's smiling right now, so I think that's the right answer. Oh, yeah. Now, I mean, right off the bat, this is very worrisome. You got a guy coming in with blasts and DIC, and that should always make you a little bit worried about uh, promyelocytic leukemia. Certainly, all malignancies can cause DIC, but... Uh, APL has just a, a real penchant for doing it for whatever reason. You really need to look at the smear. It, it can give you a hint. Not always. You'll never be 100% looking at a smear and being able to diagnose a specific subtype of leukemia. 
but it can certainly reinforce your suspicion if you see certain things. And in this case, as we also talked about in our HemePath series, on the smear, you know, we may see some abnormal morphology and you can be suspicious for blast, but you need a flow cytometry outcome in order to definitely confirm whether or not what you're seeing are, are blast. So definitely want to send off some flow right away. Yeah, that's all perfect. So that's exactly what we did in this case. So remember that whenever we see blast reported on the different CBC with differential, as, as Ronick and Dan were saying, that you have to confirm it with flow cytometry. And the first thing that you do is the smear just tells you, does it look like a blast? And, and the lab technician ended up looking at this and thinking that it was a blast, which is why it was reported out as a blast. When we looked at the smear, the cells had a morphology with densely packed granules and hour rods. And when we looked at the smear, the morphology was consistent with blasts. So there were cells that had very dense nucleus with scant cytoplasm. So there's a very large nucleus with scant cytoplasm. And in addition, some of these blasts varied in size, and they had densely packed purple granules or azurophilic granules with hour rods. So really what we were seeing was a cell with a very large nucleus, small amounts of cytoplasm, densely packed granules, and hour rods, which rang the alarm bell morphologically of a myeloblast, in particular of APL, uh, and, and that's something that we can see on morphology. We also got the flow cytometry, and the flow showed CD33 positive, CD117 positive, CD34 negative, HLA-DR negative, and increased side scatter. So based on both the flow and the morphology, the pathologist told us that this is highly suspicious of APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia. So I just want to recap one thing before I ask these guys more questions, and that's the fact that, remember, flow cytometry is, is one of the phenotypic markers of the cell, and it helps us know if all of these cells, it supports the idea that these cells may be clonal. And so this flow is telling us what the phenotype of these blasts are, and this is characteristic of APL. And what I mean by that is CD33 positivity, CD34 negative, HLA-DR negative. That's a consistent pattern with an APL blast or, or this acute promyelocytic blast. So I want to ask Dan and Ronak, uh, so we, we had this patient who had all these densely packed granules. Is this typically what we'd expect to see morphologically? The, the pathologist told us that, but do we ever see anything different? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that when I was on call, I actually had a case of APL and they actually had the other type of variant. So I think what you were describing, Vivek, is the hypergranular variant where you see a lot of these, these hour rods and these purple granules in the cell. But conversely, you can also have a hypogranular variant where the appearance is going to be more of these bilobe nuclei without as many granules, which certainly, of course, with the appropriate clinical suspicion and very good uh, lab scientists, you can probably still make this diagnosis, at least clinically, or have an index of suspicion for this diagnosis. But you know, it is certainly becomes a little bit more of a, a clinical challenge because it's not the normal one and the more common one that we're used to seeing. Yeah, and, that, and that's perfect. That Typically, we see hypergranularity, but you can have a hypogranular variant. And within that hypogranular variant, there's also a characteristic flow pattern. And that's why the flow cytometry, again, is so important to phenotypically characterize the blast. 
But so Dan, so now we have this patient and we have the flow cytometry, the morphology. We're concerned for the pathologist tells us APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia. Dan, what exactly is APL? Yeah, fortunately, its name tells you pretty much all the things you, you need to know about what type of cells you're dealing with. It's, uh, it is a subtype of AML. And so AML is already a pretty rare disorder. Fortunately, it doesn't seem like it when you work in an academic medical center, but it really is rare in the, in the general population. And APL accounts for less than 10% of all acute leukemias. But it is a subtype that consists of mostly promyelocytes. And so that's, that's what the P is for. And that's what, you know, promyelocytes are these early myeloid cells that have lots and lots of these granules, uh, typically. And the thing that we got to keep in mind about it is that it is highly associated with DIC and the associated coagulopathy. And so these days has a better prognosis than most of the other subtypes of AML over the long term. But that first, you know, 48 hours after presentation is still extremely high risk due to bleeding. In fact, back in the day when we used to treat this with just conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy, like the same regimens we use on garden variety AML, the bleeding deaths were maybe 40%, 45% of the cause of death in, in these, uh, in these early cases, which is just, just crazy. And a lot of it's CNS bleeding too. That's the thing you really worry about. But nowadays we know that this is usually related to a mutation or a translocation rather, uh, between chromosomes 15 and 17. That's far and away the most common genetic change that you see in this disease. And that corresponds to a fusion of two different genes, a promyelocytic leukemia gene, or the PML gene, and the retinoic acid receptor gene on chromosomes 15 and 17, respectively. And so uh, commonly referred to by their acronym, so PML, RARA, and we now kind of understand why that causes what we see. Basically, the retinoic acid receptor is an important signal molecule for hematopoietic stem cell differentiation, and it messes up the regulation of the cell cycle when these two proteins are fused. But we can actually leverage the physiologic function of that retino retinoic acid receptor moiety uh, in this fusion protein to treat this cancer and to force these cells to differentiate out of their sort of blastic form and into terminally mature or terminally differentiated cells that then die off fairly quickly. And that's the reason why nowadays with this new treatment strategy that we'll get into a little bit further, we're able to cure almost all of these patients, like upwards of 90% of patients are able to be cured of this as long as they survive that initial period of, with that super high risk for DIC. Dan, out of curiosity, and this is more for uh, my reference, you said retinoic acid as in, is that like this related to the skincare products by any chance? Is there any similarity there? There is, yeah. So we're, we're specifically uh, looking at the, the trans conformation of, of retinoic acid. And, and so that's, that's the mainstay. And that's the thing that you really want to slam into these patients as soon as you find out that they've arrived is something called all trans retinoic acid or ATRA, ATRA. All the studies of this disease show that the longer you delay getting that into somebody, the greater their mortality overall. And so it's, this is why we consider APL a hematologic emergency, because not only is it a super high risk state for bleeding related deaths, but it's something that we can act on right away with a fairly low risk medication, all things considered, especially compared to 
some of our other anti-cancer drugs. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right to identify that. It is basically a certain form of vitamin A. Yeah, it's unbelievable that a skincare product, you know, that we think of as just, oh, yeah, it's this thing that you use for acne is actually used to treat cancer. And it's really funny that, you know, when we give this to patients, sometimes I make that, you know, sort of reference that, hey, you know, this isn't to treat your acne, but it's it's similar compound to how you treat your acne in pill form. So just, you know, so, so I think to recap a little bit about what Dan said, APL, again, is the subtype of AML typically involves this translocation 1517. And what we're having here is that normally the retinoic acid and the retinoic acid receptor or that RARA receptor is what's used to differentiate an immature blast into a mature cell in the myeloid lineage. And this translocation causes a disruption in that. So these cells are stuck and can't differentiate into more mature cells. And we use ATRA, or this all-transretinoic acid, to help promote differentiation uh, into a mature cell. So, Ronak, in this case, we have this patient who's coming in. They have clear DIC. We're concerned for APL. What's the next step for this for this guy? You know, going back to the conversation about the skincare product, though, right? So these are these are vitamin A derivatives, and. As Vivek alluded to, ATRA is essentially vitamin A in a capsule form. So it in itself is not a chemotherapy, which is something that a traditional chemotherapy per se, which is something that I had learned actually from my hypogranular case. And so that's why given the high degree of, of death that can be seen in patients with untreated APL, if there's even a slightest index of suspicion, you just go ahead and give that ATRA. Because if there is no APL there, then there's nothing to promote differentiation in, in which case you haven't really done them any harm. But if your index of suspicion was correct, and this does in fact end up being a- APL, giving them ATRA could actually save their life. So um, ATRA started PO at 22.5 milligrams per meter squared twice daily, should be started immediately. And then if you haven't done so already, go ahead and send off that stat fish for the translocation 1570 to confirm that translocation is actually there. So that's exactly what we did in this patient was we, we started them on ATRA exactly at the dose Ronick said. And it's just, I just want to reiterate that it's so important if you ever suspect APL to start the treatment, because like Ronick said, it's it's relatively harmless. There are few side effects to ATRA, you know, that especially in the short term for a dose or two, you want to start that to start treatment as soon as possible to help this patient prevent bleeding complications, prevent other complications of their leukemia as soon as possible. So, that was done. And then we also sent the fish. And so just to throw back to our heme path series, and, and I highly recommend you listen to that if you have any questions about what fish is. And, and this was in our cytogenetics episode. Fish is looking for large chromosomal rearrangements. And in this case, we're looking for that 1517 fusion. So the PML gene is located on chromosome 15, and the RARA gene is located on chromosome 17. So we're looking for that rearrangement. So Dan, can you describe a little bit more about what that would look like if if you were sending a fish test for that? Yeah. Typically, you'll have one probe that's red, one probe that's green. And, you know, depending on whether you're doing a breakaway or fusion, in this case, we'll do a fusion probe, the fluorescence will be yellow when those two are in close proximity. And so you hybridize these fluorescently labeled fragments of DNA onto the patient's cells 
and you look at them with a the fluorescence microscope and you see, you know, are those red and greens kind of on their own little chromosomes where they're supposed to be? Or are you seeing a bunch of yellow dots everywhere saying that these two are right next to each other, The basically the genes are fused together and that's a positive positive signal for your translocation being present. And, and that's so important that, that really, in this case, we're looking what we call the dual color, dual fusion probe and looking to see if there's a fusion signal. And that's the typical 1517. One thing we didn't talk about that can also be a de- definition of AML is an atypical translocation. It's rare. You know, we're talking maybe of the rare APLs that we see, we're talking a rare subset of that, you know, le- maybe 5% we see these atypical translocations. They always involve chromosome 17 because that's where that retinoic acid receptor is. And remember, retinoic acid receptor is what promotes differentiation, and that's the part that has some issue with it. And another fish probe that you can do, and that's often done by pathologists, is what we call a break-apart probe. And what that means is if there is any any break-apart in RARA or any rearrangement in that RARA area, that will be apparent on that fish study. So that's how you can look for these atypical translocations. So in this case, though, we had uh, the typical 1517 balanced translocation where the dual color dual fusion probe, it was a yellow, lots of yellow signals within the cell. And so that was diagnostic that this patient had APL. And we'll talk more about the treatments for APL in the next episode. But Ronak, the big thing with this patient right now is they have DIC. How would you manage this patient's DIC? You know, the important thing to remember is that a lot of these disease states are also just associated with other hematologic ideology or issues as well, rather. And so in this case, the DIC you would manage just like you would manage anybody else's DIC, right? You want to keep their platelet count up uh, greater than 30. You want to try and keep their fibrinogen greater than 100. Our patient had a fibrinogen of 70 and try to keep their INR less than two. So essentially you're ensuring that they have the necessary products in order to deal with any form of bleeding that may arise and prevent bleeding from happening. And that's exactly what we did. So we transfused platelets uh, to try to get that goal at 30. And we gave this patient cryoprecipitate to bring up the fibrinogen we also gave them vitamin K in order to think about reducing that INR. Um, we didn't give FFP to this patient yet because there were no signs of bleeding, but but we were going to watch it closely, and we were watching these DIC labs every eight hours because things can rapidly change in these patients, and they can have very severe coagulopathy, so it's really important to stay on top of it, particularly for these new diagnosis of APL. So I want to skip ahead a little bit just to cap off, especially as we're transitioning from the the emergency series and really the acute management of APL. So he ended up also getting started on arsenic. So he was on atra arsenic. We'll talk about this in part two of this episode. So I don't want people to focus on that right now. But seven days into treatment, he ended up developing severe hypoxia and a chest x-ray showed pulmonary edema. He had a worsening AKI. And then he was noted to have diffuse anasarca, essentially. So he had this pulmonary edema, anasarca, and an AKI. Dan, what was going on with this patient, and what would you do? Jeez, this sure sounds like uh, differentiation syndrome to me. So we talked about how this treatment that we use for APL tends to try and force these promyelocytes, these malignant promyelocytes, to differentiate into some terminally differentiated myeloid cell because those will die off and you won't have to worry about them anymore. They can't continue to divide as cancer cells once they've made that transition. 
The downside of that is you imagine somebody who has these uncontrolled cell division going on and then you try and force all of those cells to become mature granulocytes all of a sudden. It's like all of a sudden they have so many neutrophils and, and other granulocytes just kicking around. There's going to be a lot of pro-inflammatory dust that gets kicked up with that. And so what can happen is you end up with so many sort of cytokines. I know it's a very hand wavy thing to say. But it's all these sort of pro-inflammatory cytokines getting elaborated off these now newly formed uh, mature granulocytes. And people can end up with a kind of a capillary leak syndrome type picture, usually characterized by really severe pulmonary edema, like you said, diffuse anasarca. You can even get sweet syndrome, that sort of neutrophilic dermatitis that can come up. So any consequence of having just a sudden influx of mature granulocytes, that, that's what you'll see in differentiation syndrome. And it's something that we often will treat with steroids, something anti-inflammatory to counteract that, that sort of cytokine effect. And Ronak, how much steroids would you give this guy? So he's got this bad pulmonary edema. And, and what we'll talk about in the next episode is we often give steroid prophylaxis while we start these differentiating agents like the atra and the arsenic. But this guy, despite that, had this, these bad symptoms. What dose of steroids would you give? Yeah, just given the severity of the symptoms, I think I would just go with dexamethasone, 10 milligrams twice daily. Just hit him with the, with the heavy stuff up front, and that way we're trying to control his symptoms. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what we did in this case. We, he, he, had, he had days of high-dose dexamethasone at 10 milligrams, BID. Eventually, we tapered it. And fortunately for him, his, his symptoms improved. We got his kidney function we di- back, to, back to normal. We diuresed him. And he ultimately ended up in remission and is, is now several years out in remission. But you know, I just, I just think this is a great case to talk about an important hematologic emergency diagnosis. And really, I just wanted to um, thank Dan and Ronak really for, for walking us through the case and, and taking us taking us home through this. All right, guys, I thought that was a fantastic discussion. Vivek, thank you so much for bringing this case forward. You know, I think it highlighted so many important things that we need to be conscientious of as we kind of move forward, especially in, in subsequent episodes. Number one, it highlighted the fundamentals of basic hematologic principles and emergencies that we talked about, including DIC. Number two, it brought us back to our HemePath series and talked about, you know, the importance of fish and flow and all of those things. And we highly encourage our listeners to go back and take a look at those episodes if they haven't done so already. They're going to be super important as we move forward into more of these malignancies. But also, Vivek, you, you highlighted a type of leukemia that used to be, used to be associated with such a high mortality rate, but is something that we can treat fairly easily when it happens and it comes into the hospital. And so truly it is an emergency. These patients are very, very sick, but it's so nice knowing that there is a treatment that's available that can have great, great outcomes. Guys, what final thoughts do you have as you reflect on today's case? All right, I'm going to start off and then I'm going to hand it over to Dan because I know he has more knowledge to drop on us. So my recap is that for the longest time, I always wondered, when do you actually suspect APL? And people always talked about, oh, yeah, when you suspect APL, just start ATRA. And the way you do that is you look at the morphology of the blast. So look at the smear. It may morphologically appear consistent with APL. And talk to your pathologist, and they'll tell you if it is or not, and then start ATRA immediately if there's a concern. The flow cytometry has certain features that are characteristic of APL as well. But to make that diagnosis, you need that cytometry 
outside of genetic information, you need to have a translocation involving that RARA gene. And typically you have that 1517 PML RARA translocation that you can find out in those, in those fish studies. And that's why we order that fish stat to get that as soon as possible. Because again, starting treatment in these patients is so incredibly important. We really mean that. You know, every acute leukemia is, is a serious thing, but like Ronick said uh, before you, Vivek, uh, this is a, a truly a hematologic emergency. There's good sort of clinical data to show that even a difference of 12 hours uh, in having a hematologist see one of these patients that ultimately gets diagnosed with APML leads to a significant mortality difference at, at 30 days. And, and even a, a single day's delay in starting ATRA also associated with a significantly increased mortality. So the moral of the story is if you suspect this, just jump on it and and start that ATRA right away and ask questions later. All right, guys. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode. So until next time, everybody, see you later. See you later. Peace.